0: Today, October 22, is a very significant day in the history of our beginnings. Welcome to the Adventist History Podcast, episode number 43, The Color Line, part 3. Last time, we talked about John Harvey Kellogg's fundraising book called The Living Temple, which was supposed to make the sanitarium great again, and instead led to him being kicked out of the Seventh-day Adventist Church for his pantheistic ideas. Well, technically pantheism was the problem, but it was also about the fact that Kellogg's vision of adventism was seen as incompatible with the rest of the church. He wanted adventism to become much less uh, emphasizing the prophetic nature of things and much more social gospely. Kellogg was also incidentally very much a fan of the let me spend most of the church's money policy, and on that General Conference President Arthur Daniels said, no. So here we are, back with another two-episode arc about the color line. Why? Because not all Seventh-day Adventists are white. Next question, please. Okay, I'm I'm being a little snarky. But you should know that Seventh-day Adventism in North America is the most racially and politically diverse denomination. So, when we do Adventist history well, it should be colorful. To refresh your memory, the color line phrase referred to the racial wall separating black Americans from white Americans. The color line was formed by laws, bullying, customs, traditions, etc., all designed to trap black Americans inside a cultural and political ghetto. Anyone who wanted to dismantle the color line would have to face a virtual army of prejudice, vigilantly defending it. In the original Color Line episodes, we talked about how white Adventist leaders took one look at that army of prejudice and decided that that wasn't where the fight should be. Sure, most of them hated the color line, but if you wanted to work peacefully among the people in the South, there wasn't much you can do about it, and so the culturally Northern Adventists found themselves looking at the South more as a foreign mission field than a part of their own land. After all, In a foreign mission field, you sometimes have to contextualize and go along with local customs in order to do ministry, local customs you may very well disagree with. And then, hopefully, after you win the trust of the people, you can change those customs. This was by no means a settled issue within the church. Most black Adventist preachers favored integration. They didn't want to see the church compromise with bigotry but to stand on the gospel principle of equality before Christ. Maybe the United States government allowed discrimination, but the church should be the last place on earth where discrimination is found. If white Christians refuse to worship with black Christians, then those white people weren't really Christians at all, were they, and we don't want them in our church. That was a hard argument to answer. And to be fair, many white church leaders felt the same way. For them, it wasn't a preference for segregation, but it was the reality of violence that pushed them toward a more accommodating position. Edson White, steaming up and down the rivers of the South, faced bands of vigilantes threatening to lynch him just for teaching black people how to read. Others threatened to burn down the schools he was starting as soon as he left. Still more promised to set his boat on fire, Edson White and his team risked their lives everywhere they went, but especially in Mississippi. Thousands of blacks were lynched by mobs or gangs after the Civil War, and Mississippi led the way. You might be wondering, why are we still dealing with these problems 30 years after the Civil War ended? Now, that's a huge question, and one answer is because the North had largely abandoned the fight, They won the war, let's go home, we're done. We passed all the laws to free the slaves and do all these things. And they didn't have the stomach to enforce those laws consistently. The 1890s were a very different decade in the North than it was in the South. Abraham Lincoln's Republicans weren't really Abraham Lincoln's kind of Republicans anymore. The Supreme Court had been carefully reversing or blocking the rights of blacks for 20 years now. In some places... 99% of newly registered black voters were disenfranchised. All of this emboldened groups like the KKK and their sympathizers so that the South became as dangerous as it ever was. Adventist efforts to educate black people ran straight into the new wave of bigotry that was sweeping across the South. A clash seemed inevitable. Edson White wrote to his mom, Quote, Two weeks ago, a mob of about 25 white men came to our church at Calmer at about midnight. They brought out Brother Stevenson, our worker, and then looted the church, burning books, maps, charts, etc. They hunted for Brother Casey, our leading colored brother of that place, but he had escaped in time, so they did not reach him. They then went to the house of Brother Olvin, who was another black leader, called out, and whipped him with a cowhide. I think they would have killed him, if it had not been for a friendly white man who ordered them to stop whipping him, after they had struck a few blows. They did not pay any attention to him at first, but he drew his revolver, and said that the next man who struck a blow would hear from him, and then they stopped. During this time they shot at Brother Olven's wife, and struck her in the leg, but did not hurt her seriously. They took Brother Stevenson to the nearest railway station, put him on the cars, and sent him out of the country. They posted notice on our church, forbidding me to return. The whole difficulty arose from our efforts to aid the colored people. We had given them clothing where in need, and food to those who were hungry, and taught them some better ideas about farming, introducing different seeds, such as peanuts, beans, etc., that bring a high price, and this the whites would not stand." End quote. Situations like this brought about a quick change in the way Adventists worked in the South. Edson would soon give up the boat, the Morning Star, and set up headquarters in Nashville. And while his mother initially pushed for full integration, after receiving letters like Edson's while she was in Australia, she began urging the church to be a little bit more careful not to excite prejudices in the South. She even made the controversial statement that, quote, colored people should not urge that they be placed on an equality with white people, end quote. Now, we need to keep this comment within its historical setting. Ellen White most definitely believed everyone was equal, and she occasionally had to remind the church of this. But she also knew that agitating for social equality during the 1890s and early 1900s was, in some places, suicidal. Ellen White wasn't denying equality. She was only cautioning the pursuit of political and social equality right now. Unfortunately, not right now has become the refrain of closet racists ever since. You know, maybe next year we can get you some rights, but right now things are a little tense, so let's just wait till things calm down. 60 years later, Martin Luther King Jr. would write, quote, for years now, I have heard the word wait. It rings in the ear of every Negro with piercing familiarity. This wait has almost always meant never. We must come to see that justice too long delayed is justice denied. End quote. King is exactly right, but we must not lump Ellen White in among his critics. Ellen White wasn't asking blacks to stop wanting equal rights and just wait for white elites to give it to them someday. To her, introducing people to Jesus was simply more important than agitating for political or social change. And if agitating for political and social change jeopardized the giving of the gospel, then it wasn't worth it. She was trying to avoid the political minefield of racial politics. In the 1850s and 60s, she had no problem entering the minefield because Adventists were confined to the north, And so her activism would hardly jeopardize the church's mission. But in the South, it would. And that mission she considered to be most important. Does this mean that Ellen White was indifferent to political and social equality? No. In the same document that she made this controversial statement, she said, Let black Adventists, quote, understand that this plan is to be followed until the Lord shows us a better way, end quote. In other words, Ellen White understood this policy as temporary. It it was essentially, keep your head down until God gives us the all clear and then stand up. Now, were there church leaders who followed after her death that only heard the keep your head down part? Sure. Did they use Ellen White to oppose the 1960s civil rights movement? Definitely. Did Ellen White rise from the dead in the 1960s and smite them in Jesus' name? no, but she should have. That would have been so sweet. We need more smiting in this church. Anyway, I would love to talk more about that, but that's way outside the scope of this podcast. So if you want to know more about these things, visit againstthewall.org. I'll post a link in the podcast notes and on our Facebook page too, and you can read more there. Now back to our regularly scheduled program. All of this is to say that General Conference President Arthur G. Daniels was a strong supporter of the church's policy of compromise in the South. In early 1902, Daniels met white and black leaders in Nashville to install the church's policy on a much stronger footing. This was the phase where the individual initiative of people like Edson White were being replaced by church institutions. The work had been successful enough, And it was time for the men in suits to bring their gifts of efficiency, leadership, and organization to the South. Daniels wanted to make sure every leader in the South was on the same page with his policy, that black Adventists should work for blacks and whites should work for whites. If even a few of these leaders were going to try and go rogue by integrating blacks and whites into the same congregation, then it jeopardized the work and safety of everyone else. So after discussion, Daniels boasted that, quote, I don't think there was a dissenting voice to that arrangement. End quote. But then he went on to add, quote, So far as I know, there was not opposition from the colored people. End quote. Now, this is a revealing statement. So far as I know, why didn't Daniels know how black leaders felt about the policy? I mean, when you go out, to forge a policy with such serious implications for how the church does its work among black people, shouldn't you take black people's preference into account? It's true that there were comparatively few black leaders, and it's also likely that there was only one black opinion that Daniels cared about in Nashville that belonging to Louis C. Sheaf. Sheaf was a rock star of a black preacher. Long before there were um, rock stars. And Daniels is telling, Sheaf was completely on his side at Nashville. That was a huge win because Daniels had plans for his rock star. The early 1900s were also the early days of what would be a great black migration out of the South. A huge target of this migration was Washington, D.C. Between 1860 and 1870, the black population of D.C. tripled from 14,000 to 43,000, and that number doubled by the turn of the 20th century. Though D.C. was the northern capital during the Civil War, it actually sat on the southern side of the Mason-Dixon line. Washington, D.C.'s geography determined its destiny as a microcosm of the nation's race problems. And D.C. is exactly where Daniels wanted to go next. A later comment by an Adventist preacher probably reflected Daniels' views that D.C. was a mixture of southern customs and people with northern energy and enlightenment. The preacher wrote, quote, The true way of dealing with the southern question, the race question, once settled here, will set a precedent for all the nation, all the south, end quote. So Daniels likely saw D.C. as the battleground where, if victory could be won on this question, it would be the template for applying it to the rest of the nation. Now, Adventists had made a decent start in D.C. with their B team, but now it was time to bring in the starters. After 40 years of the church trying to show the U.S. government that, hey, we're not bad people, we're not crazy people, please stop passing laws that continue to hurt us, i.e. Sunday laws, Daniels wanted to plant a professional, respectable example of Adventism on Congress's front lawn. So get out your flagpins, boys, and wear something red or white or blue. The problem with Washington, D.C. was that there was an Adventist church there where white and black members worshiped together. This, of course, caused some controversy in D.C., no doubt, And controversy was exactly what Daniels didn't want in the nation's capital. Daniels wanted Louis Sheaf to fix this mess by planting a black church there. And while Sheaf would be holding his meetings, Daniels also got a talented white evangelist, Judson Washburn, to hold his own meetings. And if everyone just did their jobs, Washington, D.C., was going to be the stage where everyone would see the wisdom of this Nashville policy. A white church and a black church would grow much faster apart than they could ever possibly grow together. At the end of Sheefe and Washburn's meetings, Adventism would have two strongholds in the nation's capital. There was one small problem. Many of the members of the church in D.C didn't want to desegregate chief among them was the head elder andrew calstrom when daniels warned others that calstrom had a will like iron that's saying something coming from daniels there was no way in hades that calstrom was going to accept the nashville policy in washington dc calstrom declared quote the world day by day is widening the breach between the races by every possible way, and this separation is wrong. If this same practice is followed by the SDA, that is the Seventh day Adventist, it must still continue to be wrong. God has spoken upon this subject very clearly. End quote. Back in Kelstrom Up were two very prominent black members, Dr. James Howard and Rosetta Douglas Sprague, eldest daughter. Of Frederick Douglass. James Howard was a trained doctor from Howard University and a government employee. He largely stayed out of the drama. That really wasn't his personality or style. But his letters to Ellen White are passionate and earnest, and he made a wonderful case for integration. He said that black and white had worshipped together in Washington for 10 years, calling this, quote, one of the strongest points of the Adventist cause in Washington, end quote. As for Rosetta Douglas Sprague, well, she had no problem shooting the status quo if she could. She had been raised by a revolutionary for a father and educated in some of the most progressive schools in America. She wasn't shy either. This triumvirate in D.C. was exactly why Daniels wanted to make sure that Louis Sheaf was on his side. He didn't want Sheaf to turn and join the other side, the moment he got to DC, which is, of course, what seems to have happened. Or maybe Sheaf wasn't really on Daniel's side at all. He just wanted to go to DC and he knew he had to keep his mouth shut and agree with Daniel's in order to get there. All we know is Daniel's plan for DC seemed to collapse within weeks. That doesn't mean it was a failure, however. Louis Sheaf kicked off his evangelistic meetings in DC in June. He made room for 400 people underneath his tent, which would have been a strong showing. Instead, he got up to 2,000 people showing up. Sheaf was the whole preaching package. He was handsome, he was young, charismatic, confident, intelligent, and because life just is not fair, he was also an amazing singer. He preached until October. Four months at an average of seven to nine times a week. That is a crazy long evangelistic series, even by Adventist standards. Local newspapers, like the Washington Post, covered him in fascinating detail, describing the sound of his voice to how he manages to preach without notes. But most alarming to Daniels was how some local papers were praising Sheaf and Adventists for integrating black and white members together. Worse yet, the Washington Adventist Church passed a resolution declaring that there would be no discrimination on account of race at their church. Oh, the progressive press loved that too and heaped praise upon Sheaf and Seventh day Adventists. They had no idea that, come September, the master plan of Arthur Daniels had been to discriminate on the account of race. Meanwhile, Across town was Judson Washburn, the white evangelist. Washburn had just returned from a successful ministry in England, and before that he had helped start the church in D.C. So maybe he thought that an evangelistic campaign in D.C. was something of a homecoming for him. Well, I guarantee it didn't feel that way. Washburn didn't get the positive press that Sheaf did, nor did he get the attendance numbers. Washburn wrote, quote, it seemed as though he, meaning Sheaf, was the head and I was the tail, and it was not always pleasant to be the tail. End quote. Washburn was a very capable preacher and a strong Seventh day Adventist. But here he embarked on a terrible streak of bitterness that was to color his life from time to time. He became Daniels' spy, accusing Sheaf of abandoning the Nashville policy and betraying the church. Washburn wrote of Sheaf, The very first time I saw Sheaf, I was somewhat startled and unfavorably disappointed when I looked at his eyes. There was a peculiar, shifty, cruel, cunning look in his eyes that made me feel uncomfortable. And that, I believe, is the real index of his character. End quote. Okay, so that was incredibly petty and most probably racist of him, because those qualities had long been used by white racists to describe blacks. Washburn charged that Sheaf was more interested in politics than the gospel and that any effort for equal rights was really a desire to be master over others, and that's not biblical. It was just just really ugly stuff. When September did roll around, The separation of the races in the Washington Adventist Church was announced, much to the confusion of the local press. Announcing it was one thing, however, because, you know, you couldn't force anyone to leave their church. So, some suits from the General Conference arrived, including the next General Conference president, to work something out. The emissaries sought ways to legally pull the church building out from under the congregation, Well, that was a dead end, and in remarkably bad faith, too, given that Daniels was already anticipating having to find a white church elsewhere. One of the emissaries even had to preach on Sabbath and explain to a hostile congregation why the General Conference was trying to split them up. One can only imagine the icy silence that sermon was greeted with. After a marathon business meeting that lasted from after church until well into the night, 40 white members of Sheaf's church left to join Washburn's new church. Sheaf's congregation then called themselves the First Church, and Washburn's became the Second Church. The 40 who left were immediately replaced by the 60 Sheaf had brought in through his meetings. And in the end, no one won in this plan. The General Conference split Sheaf's church, sure, but they couldn't make all the white people leave, so his church remained mixed, just with fewer white people. The ruffled feathers settled somewhat, but there remained a gulf of mistrust between Sheaf and church leaders. W.A. Spicer, one of those emissaries, one of those suits from the General Conference, who was to become the next General Conference president, wrote about Sheaf to Daniels, quote, I feel I do not know that he is true and loyal to us or not. Time will only show. End quote. Louis Chief's blackness obviously didn't quiet Spicer's fears. Church leaders couldn't understand black identity. Sheaf was not just a man, he was not just a Christian, he was not just a Seventh day Adventist, he was black. And that made him a part of a community in Washington, D.C., that no white Adventist could have been a part of. The black community worked to support each other across denominational lines, and this could make white leaders nervous. I mean, look, there's Sheaf at the Metro African Methodist Episcopal Church, speaking alongside other black luminaries. Oh, look again, there's Sheaf in a black rights movement, which would, shortly, become the NAACP. To church leaders, it did look like Sheaf had lost his focus. Never mind that Sheaf was preaching thoroughly Adventist ideas, to people who would never set foot in an Adventist tent, Sheaf was getting too mixed up in social politics, they decided. He was making friends with socialists and agitators and ministers from other denominations in ways that seemed to them threatening. To church leaders, Sunday laws were the key political issue, not racial equality. They simply couldn't understand Sheaf. So they largely wrote him down as being arrogant or stubborn or disloyal and viewed him with suspicion. Now, that doesn't mean they didn't get along. It doesn't mean that they couldn't work together. But it meant that they looked at Washburn as much more of an ally than Sheaf, and this really paid off for Washburn. Washburn had found a church building for his new congregation, and he desperately needed the wider denomination to help pay for it. Washburn, as we've seen, was a prolific letter writer and knew exactly how to snuggle up against those with power to help him. I know that sounds like more snark, but it's true. He knew how to fundraise. And part of fundraising is knowing how to write nice letters, get on people's good side, and then ask them for favors. So he took to writing articles in the review, which acted as if Sheaf and his congregation were just invisible. Washburn wrote that the Adventists needed a strong church in Washington, a strong tower to guard against Sunday laws and the like. For you Tolkien nerds out there, Washburn was essentially positioning his church as Minas Ithil, keeping watch over the sleepy evil of Mordor. And uh, we all know how well that turned out. Washburn didn't call the denomination to support the Adventist churches in Washington, but to support his church. That his church was called Second Church should have really just poked a hole into his whole story, but alas, the whitewashing of Sheaf's church went on. While Ellen White supported the fundraising for Second Church, her article in the review was headlined An Appeal in Behalf of the Washington, D.C. Church as if there were only one. You know, First Church had debts too. It had been there first. It was larger. It was better known in the community. It was ignored. Chief asked the General Conference for a small, small slice of the money that was being raised for the benefit of Second Church. Washburn opposed it vociferously and wanted Chief gone. Ever the loyal informant, Washburn wrote to Daniels, quote, Brother Sheaf will have a big tent and do a big work here this summer. The greater the success that work has, the greater harm it will do, end quote. That was crossing the line, and Daniels told Washburn to knock it off. Washburn had gotten everything he wanted, and the Nashville policy had been installed in D.C. They had won. The water was calm again. There's no point throwing stones in it now. Washburn had all the confidence of his uncle, George Butler, and believed that he was right on principle and would die before he gave that up. That Louis Sheaf was just so gifted and so successful as a preacher must have just felt like an existential threat to Washburn. He had his insecurities. But neither he nor Daniels were bad men. They just couldn't get their minds around the blackness of Louis C. Sheaf. And they interpreted Sheaf, through the matrix of white Adventism, where, of course, Chief didn't always measure up. But if Daniels was thinking that the issue had now been resolved and he could take a few victory laps, he was about to be sadly mistaken. Because First Church was feeling awfully frustrated with Washburn and the General Conference. First Church felt like they had been bulldozed on the race question and they really didn't get a fair hearing. And so they wanted to make sure that Seventh-day Adventists out there knew that at First Church, white and black Christians worshipped together in harmony. Hey, it's me again. If this episode didn't quench your desire for more Adventist history content, then go subscribe to Avenus History Extra. It's a private podcast that I do for those who support the Avenus History Project. You can get access to Avenus History Extra on the website, which is AvenusHistoryProject.org, or by becoming a patron at Patreon.com. Now, there's more variety at Avenus History Extra, in case you were wondering. I do some interviews. Sometimes I do bonus episodes. You know, I, we had a good episode here in the Avenus History Podcast, and I want to talk some more about it. Other times I go behind the scenes at conferences I attend, like the Women in 7th Avenue's History conference. What's more, just as a second announcement for you, Michael Campbell and I are leading a bus tour in October, 2024. So if you want to go drive around New England a bit, see the, the sights, and have some fun, well, you can sign up for our bus tour newsletter, once again, at History Project.org. And we're going to keep you up to date there about what you need to know to go and sign up for that and all of that. So just to be very, 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 very clear, we don't have a sign up for the bus tour itself, but it's a sign up for the newsletter so you can stay informed about the bus tour so I don't have to make announcements every single time and interrupt these episodes and all of that. That's where those announcements are going to be. So if you're interested, head on over to the website. You can sign up for the bus tour newsletter over there. Okay, I think that about does it. Thanks again for listening.